Welcome to today's Pro-AV podcast brought to you by Market Scale. I'm Sean Heath, and today's Sean-versation is with the one and only Mark Coxon. He is a regional sales manager for Barco. Mark, how are you today? I am doing well, Sean. Thanks for having me. Your background is where you're from. And frankly, you're really a guy who lives more in the present and the future than in the past. So I'm going to go ahead and skip all the background and let's just pretend that you were fascinating. And let's get to the now, because you do some really interesting stuff. You have an opportunity to really participate and attend some really interesting events. You chronicle your trips to these events at, and I want to go ahead and give a plug right here from the beginning, at ravepubs.com. Dot com. You put out some really interesting articles, and I specifically want to talk about one of your articles, the Chasing Westworld Machine Learning and AI, and your experience visiting the TEA. So the conference we're talking about is put on by the Themed Entertainment Association. That's the TEA. And the TEA is a great organization that really has like a lot of architects and designers and, you know, Disney Imagineering's part of the TEA. These are the kind of folks that go um, to those places, game developers, content producers, and us manufacturers get invited to some of this stuff too, because people use our hardware to implement their ideas. And so they put on this conference called SATE, which is Storytelling, Architecture, Technology, and Experience. And this year Year, their theme was beyond the screen and it was about immersion. And so um, it was a great conference. And, and unfortunately, I only got to attend one day. They had two full days, eight in the morning to five at night speakers that were just people you would pay to see on any stage. And so uh, amazing, amazing place. And one of the panels they had was actually on Westworld, which was kind of the jumping off point for my article there. And I find that really interesting. Tell me a little bit about what you took from that conference. They had Garner Holt, who did all the animatronics for Pirates of the Caribbean and all these places you'll see at Disneyland. He was there talking about the robotics side. Um, They had a game developer there kind of talking about just gameplay and and how you could set up environments for things. And then they had another gentleman who's a gentleman uh, I stole the ant analogy for. And I didn't steal it because I did credit him with it. His name is Stephen Teague, and he's with a company called Xperi. He's the one who set up this analogy of of the ant with AI. So it was really a a stimulating conference, and and it was something that sat with me over and over again. And it took me a couple months to get my thoughts together on it, but uh, hopefully it made uh, some coherent sense when I put it down on the blog. <laughs> I think any talk about technology in today's world, whether that's software, hardware, outer space, terrestrial technology, and, and the onward march of Moore's Law and the accelerating evolution of technology, for some reason we have this tendency both in media, science fiction, and movies to want to imbue them with more human characteristics. We want to anthropologize anthropomorphize them and turn them into conscious entities. And that's the fear, oh, the robots are going to wake up one day. I don't really have any fear that a hammer is going to take over the world. I really don't. Virtual reality is fine for putting humans in spaces where they could not survive so they can perform tests or examine possible outcomes of events in a specific environment that we would not be able to otherwise enter. But all of that is so far removed. Skynet, for those of you that are nerds, is not coming true anytime soon. Not by next Tuesday anyway. So, Mark, you get to see a lot of things. You get to see these, uh, for example, with Barco, these really amazing video walls, the size, the just the, the new mounting hardware, the applications, 360-degree cameras, and just all these amazing advances in technology that actually help people use this technology in an even more beneficial way than it was originally envisioned. But you get to see all kinds of innovations and all kinds of trends coming down the line. What have you seen recently that has really just made you sit up and take notice? 
So, I mean, I think, I think, well, there's a lot of jumping off points there. So as far as things that have made me take notice, I think there's a lot of buzz around virtual reality, right? And you mentioned virtual reality as something that we're chasing. Unfortunately, virtual reality isn't anywhere close. And the reason being, and I, I read an article on this the other day, it isn't an optics problem. It isn't a display problem. Really what it is, is a, is a sensors and interactivity problem. So, you know, I can put somebody in a, in a cave with projection. I've been able to do that for years and give them 3D glasses and let them maneuver around the space, right? We did that in aerospace and we did that in mining exploration and we did that in a lot of industries long before, you know, HTC Vive gave you the little headset that does the same thing. So in a way, the big thing that's stopping virtual reality from taking off is that it's not an intuitive interface. So I'll, I'll give you an example. I My brother-in-law has HTC Vive and they have an application on that called Bar Fight. Now I do Muay Thai kickboxing and I've teach Krav Maga. So I've fought for 20 years. I got my butt kicked in bar fight over and over and over and over again because I'm standing in a square. I'm standing between IR sensors that are trying to pick up my body in a living room and I'm having to move around the room with paddles in my hands, pushing buttons left and right, and then manipulating the paddles in a way so that they pick up my movement. I can't just go in that room, throw punches and kicks and beat up virtual people. That's the problem with virtual reality right now is that the interface is counterintuitive. For something to be virtual reality, there has to be no barrier between you and the technology. And right now, the barrier between you and the technology is the interface. The word reality is actually in the phrase virtual reality. You have to approach that as and approximate that as closely as you can. It's all about sensory input. That's correct. Some of the really cool things I've seen in mixed reality or uh, in augmented reality, I think those two things are, are things that are going to come to fruition much quicker when we're putting a digital overlay over our physical world. So when I can pick up my phone and I can, I can turn on the camera and I can scan around the room and get info on things that are in the room through the camera, seeing the object itself and then getting data around it, those type applications will be much quicker to come to fruition. And that's why like, you know, even people like I'll, I'll even mention a competitor of mine, people like Epson you know, are continuing on the Google Glass thing where they're creating glasses that are, are like HoloLens or any of these technologies where you're you're wearing a headpiece with a pretty much a projected heads up display over your face so that you can see that extra data as you go through the space. I, I think that'll come quicker than the virtual reality will just because it's something that you're already naturally seeing. I think the other problem you know, that we see out in the space um, or things that excite me, I guess, when I see these mixed reality applications. So two things. So HDR is something that most people don't understand, high dynamic range displays. Everybody knows they're better than the old displays, but they really don't get it. The thing is, is that the more natural something looks, the more you're going to forget you're looking at a screen. The problem with most displays, the color space wasn't big enough. And now we have these color spaces where I can actually make it look like, you know, I'm outside and the green of the grass looks like the green of the grass and the blue of the sky looks like the blue of the sky. I think number one, that's a technology that at home, it's a who cares, but in a virtual reality environment or a mixed reality environment, those things make a huge difference. That's number one. Number two, I think on that side, I've seen some really cool applications for like training, right? So uh, I was at a show called Seagraph. Go to that show too. It's a graphic designer show. And uh, they had this tool where you could walk up and you're looking at a car in a 3D display. And my job is to fix a part on the car. So I grabbed this drill and the drill's really tethered to this uh, mechanical arm. And so if I try to push the drill through the side of the car, I can't actually even move the drill in 3D space. Not until I align it with the opening on the 3D screen in front of me where the gap would actually be, can I reach in there? So if I'm inside that engine compartment, I know if I can turn my hand all the way over with a six inch wrench in it, or if it's going to hit something. 
because the joystick will actually stop me from moving when there's stuff in the way. And I think those type of training applications are really promising because we all know, you know, we can go through a computer diagram and click on stuff with a mouse, but when you actually have to get your hand down in an engine compartment and get a bolt off of an alternator, it's a different story. So I think those things will really advance um, some of our technical training and, you know, technology being a tool to help us, not something that's looking to replace us. There is something you said that I find really interesting. You can change the look on a screen to make it appear more real. The biggest challenge, I think, is not trying to recreate a blade of grass. I think the biggest challenge is recreating the imperfections. It's not a perfect blade of grass. It, You know, I need to see a couple of brown blades over here. I need to see a stick that shouldn't be there. It fell off that tree or something. I need to see the imperfections. And I think that sort of uncanny valley phrase that we apply to mechanical representations of the human face, that uncanny valley, I think human perception kind of extends that to everything. Yeah. Now, when you're talking about computer generated content, I agree with you 100%. You know, if, if we're not taking a live 360 camera feed and you're trying to create this content, the, those imperfections become something that are glaringly apparent if they're not there, right? And 100% agree with that theory. And, you know, I think this is where some promise of AI or, you know, randomization of generation where we have some automated generation that goes on with that randomness. Computers are getting smart enough to start to do that. So the artist isn't painting every blade of grass. The artist is saying, here are here are five or six or 10 or 100 different pieces. And I want you to randomly generate this landscape using these pieces in a way that, that you can based on these eight other pictures I give you of a similar landscape in real life. So here are eight pictures of a forest. Here are pine trees, pine needles, bushes, rocks, 3D assets that I've given you. Now you create this virtual forest. It's interesting because aerospace has been using those type of gaming engines for a while. Uh, my brother-in-law worked for Lockheed Martin, and he was a multimedia engineer. And they used to use uh, a gaming engine that they spent a million dollars a year just licensing um, to fly their 3D assets around. So if they had a plane or something, they didn't have to create the ocean and the mountains and all those things. They created the plane, and then they flew that plane around inside this 3D game engine that was being used for commercial gaming. So we're seeing a blend of that, you know, kind of consumer technology and uh, industrial technology where people leverage those things. And gaming is one of those industries that everybody's seen as a luxury and a peripheral. And it's one of those industries that um, is really coming alive with AI. And if you're watching what NVIDIA is doing out in the space, and you, if you're not, you should. NVIDIA has taken their GPUs and turned these into amazing AI machines. Because what a graphic processing unit is good at doing is a ton of parallel processing. They're doing polygons all day long. And guess what? To think, you have to have parallel processing power. And so these little GPUs, NVIDIA is using them to do AI in drones or using them to do AI in, in automated little vehicles. NVIDIA is going to be somebody that went from being like the $400 game card to what may be driving you down the street and keeping you from getting in a wreck. And uh, so they're really one to watch if you're not watching them out in the space. But gaming is becoming a huge, a huge piece of this industry. And, uh, you know, all the all the guys who were developing video games all those years who the, you know, the IT guys or the aerospace guys or somebody made fun of them. That's not going to be happening anymore. They're, they need them really bad. And I, I think they have this this unique skill set that all of a sudden has become extremely valuable in a world where we're looking at mixed reality, virtual reality, et cetera. Do you think the mindset in the gaming world of, hey, anything's possible, let's, you know, throw it out there and see what sticks, that their sort of laid back approach is what's allowed them to be a little more intuitive or a little more successful than, say, the, the strict laboratory test sort of approach? 
A hundred percent. And if you look at anything in technology, you know that there's always a company that's on the forefront and then something changes in the market. And it's usually not that guy who takes over the next phase. It's usually somebody who understands the bigger picture, or I guess who understands that industry, but has some different perspective coming in. And like you said, I mean, gaming developers will spend millions of dollars developing a game that never hits the shelf, but that's okay. Because what they'll do is they'll take lessons from code or they'll take lessons from making assets or they'll take lessons of how they process stuff and they'll use those to develop the next game. So it's not all lost, but they do have a huge tolerance for failure. And I think, you know, big companies who are commercialized, who are reporting to stockholders, who have to make commercially viable products every single time don't have that same, I guess, tolerance. It's, it's like the Google moonshot factory. You know, we try to kill it as quick as we can. You mentioned Moore's Law earlier. When you're talking about the same thing, it just it, it came up to me again. And I've said this before, but I guess I'll say it here since nobody's read me write it down. But you know, Moore's Law is one of those interesting things where you know we say just because processing power is doubling every you know X amount of years, whatever it is, that all of a sudden we're going to have something different. I, I think that's completely wrong. We're just going to have smaller things. I mean, look at Apple, right? I mean, Moore's Law has been going on for 10 years, and the iPhone is now just eh, it's faster. It has a better camera. It was still the iPhone from 10 years ago. I joke, if I put four engineers in a room instead of one, I've quadrupled the computing power. But if they all come from the same background, I'm not going to get anything different out of that lab. So without that infusion of a spark from somewhere else, Moore's Law only makes you more efficient. It doesn't make you any different. And that's where, you know, I think that's where, like you said, people like NVIDIA or gaming companies and stuff coming into this industry are making some changes and waves. So. We almost could say that the gaming industry is really at the forefront of technological research. Yeah, and you see, you know, you see a lot of proof of concept happen in the gaming world too. And and uh, we've we've been talking about this flip for a while. That you know, now consumer used to we were all chasing. Oh, what is military using for computing, or what are they doing? Now we've almost reversed it. You know, corp corporations are like, what are we using at home to do this stuff? And now, how do we bring that ease of use and user experience and all those things into this corporate environment where the things are are much less intuitive and and much more locked down? How do we give the flexibility and experience that people are getting in their consumer devices and our commercial devices? And I think gaming's the same way. I mean, gaming's one of those things where, you know, Atari was fun and that's all it was, really. Now we're at a space where you're, you're exactly right, that these guys are proving things out. I mean, Pokemon Go is a, sorry, I'm going to say this, a stupid app. You know, it's like the dumbest thing ever. It's, it's, it's like geotagging really is what it was. You go to a location with a GPS map and if you point your phone in the right direction, it'll put a little icon on it. It wasn't even really mixed reality because it, it doesn't know that there's a stair there. It doesn't jump up and down or open a door and go in a building or anything. It's just a static icon stuck on the screen. It's like a sticker. But it proved that people are, are excited about using their technology to overlay their environment. And uh, it's a huge proof of concept for mixed reality. You know, it was a little game. <laughs> so. You brought up the analogy of putting four engineers in a room, and if they all come from the same school, you just get the same thing. And I think that that is a direct indication that perception is so subjective. You have to be actively looking to bring in multiple points of view in order to really make any progress. Just because you do something faster, as you said, doesn't necessarily mean you do something different or that you do something better. There you go. Yeah. I'm really grateful I had a chance to talk to you today. I always like talking to smart people who don't necessarily see the same things I see or see the things I see in the same way I see them. Yeah, 100%.
Today, I've been talking with Mark Coxon, Regional Sales Manager for Barco, and one of the nerdiest guys I've had the pleasure to meet this month. (laughs) Well, thanks, Sean. I hope you have a great day, and we look forward to talking to you again down the road. Thanks for joining us today. All right, sir. Hey, have a good one. Take care.